Welcome to Nieuwe Vida Radio, a podcast about art, artists, and soup. Today's episode will be in English, as we have some international guests with us. Nieuwe Vida is an exhibition space for contemporary art, which also rents out studios to artists and small creative businesses in Harlem. Despite the fact that we cannot exhibit anything in our space at the moment, we would still like to continue to talk about art. So this is why we are making a podcast together with artists from the Uvidas Network, because in these times, we would still like to continue to showcase the projects we work on and the people we collaborate with. My name is Lisbeth, I'm a curator at Nieuwe Vida, and this week's guests are two artists from our group exhibition, TMI, Searching for Truth in the Post-Truth Era. So a big welcome to uh, Belitsa and Lubov Matunina. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, <laughs> very nice. You're both here. Um, so the exhibition, uh, TMI, would actually be on show at the moment. But unfortunately, we were never able to open to the public, uh, obviously, due to the um, corona pandemic. Uh, so with you both, uh, today we would like to talk about the theme of the exhibition and how it also relates to the current situation in the world. Uh, because the idea of the ex exhibition was to reflect uh, on the concept of information and how it's being treated nowadays. So questions like, can we still distinguish between fact and fiction? Um, and is that even important? How is information spread? Uh, how do we en engage critically with all the information overload uh, that is reaching us daily through the internet? And especially in, in a time like this, uh, where we're still hearing a lot about fake news, um, we thought it was still important to reflect on constructions of the truth. Uh, of course, when we were planning the exhibition, we could never have predicted uh, the current situation. Um, but we feel like, especially in this time also, it's so important to reflect on the media, the news, uh, and how information is being spread uh, and about the dangers, I guess, of, uh, of fake news and constructing information. So before we start talking about this, uh, I would like to ask you to quickly introduce yourselves, uh, tell us a little bit about your work. So, uh, Billy, perhaps you could start us off. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, I'm Billy Tsa. I'm a video artist, uh, and my work concerns itself with visual media representations of political conflicts and political violence in the perception and experience of these conflicts and violences. Cool. Thank you. And uh, Luba, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, yeah, sure. Hello. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name is uh, Luba Matunina. I'm uh, from Russia originally. Now I'm based in Amsterdam. I'm a visual artist and uh, I'm interested in creating uh, alternative realities and mythologies. And I use a lot uh, documentary genre as a basis of my work. And uh, also, I work a lot with fairy tales, mythology, anonymity, masks, shamanism, uh, and all of this uh, magical and mystical world. All right. Thank you. Very nice uh, that you could both join me today. It's the first episode we're recording with two guests. So uh, hoping it's uh, all going to work out. Uh, so, Billy, the first question uh, I'd like to ask you 
is, uh, as you mentioned already in your work, you reflect uh, on the media and coverage of, for example, conflict situations. Um, so how do you feel about what is happening in the media today? I, I mean, what's going on at the moment will have and is having a huge impact on the world as we know it. And it's also having a huge impact on um, on art practices and art world. Um, I think, I mean, the crisis that we're going through is um, on the one hand is kind of, I mean, as a bearded <laughs> uh, man from the history, says the crisis brings the inner workings of capitalism to the surface and this is this one is exactly doing the same um exactly the same and everything is becoming ever so clear and um i do think that it's a moment to pay attention and be present at the moment um and it also is bringing out um we're experiencing and realizing a radical interconnectedness i think um and seeing this virus spread so quickly uh, while being very locally nuanced. We're also going through very similar processes of lockdown, isolation and quarantine. Um, and I do not conclude that we're on the same boat or something like that, definitely not. But um, the virus might be an equalizing factor to an extent, but the current system we're in is not, and it's based on uh, inequalities. And this is ever more visible and pronounced at the moment. Um, and what's, I mean, what's happening in the media, what we see is an overload of, of um, content, and it has been an overload of content before, but ever so at this moment, specifically because um, the, the content of the news are very focused and also um, very um, violent, I would say, um, and in a larger, much larger scale. Um, and the fragilities are also ever more present as well. And I guess what I'm interested in uh, is, and I think my work is, has, always, has always been about like uh, media representations, but also um, a lot about radical solidarity and what does it mean through the use of the visual. Um, and finding ways, visualizing ways towards a radical solidarity, finding what is solidarity in the visual world to a hopefully incisive, interrogative um, interrogation of the media in general, uh, from social media to printed to many online um, or traditional media sources. Um, and I think that now that physical contact is in such limits and the um, like digital presence is taking the place of the physical social contact and and work, which I think is really the quite important part. Um, um, now more and diverse visual representations are emerging, and even if I wasn't dealing with social media and digital presence as much before, this has to be part of my work now. At least it's the context of my work to come. Um, and what we understand from media is uh, changing and ever more. And I think because of um, isolation and quarantine and physical distancing also there is a larger limit to see and reach to what is not visible which communities are not visible and relying on sources that are digital that are online and not having face-to-face -face physical contact um, has having is having a really uh, 
large consequences. And uh, I mean, I have a background in video activism, and it's really important to follow things um, in that practice. Like I do think like in certain places in Turkey, there are, um, for example, there are uh, certain groups of people cannot go. There's curfew uh, to certain ages. And also uh, in the weekends, there is um, curfews for everyone. So like this limitation to go out to see things in in in, spa- in their own uh, locality is limited. And this is affecting as well. So the media sources, independent media sources are also being affected through that. And I think this is kind of a warning as well. Um, um, there, there's a warning to to be had at this moment as well about this uh, situation. Um, and on the other hand, I mean, I don't know if I should go into the more art world part of it or not, or maybe it's another, it's a later on question. Uh, no, definitely, because I mean, I think uh, I hear you say also that it's uh, going to affect your work uh, and the topics you deal with. Um, most likely in at least uh, the near future. Um, So, I mean, uh, of course, you are also not alone in the art world. So I think it's important also to think about how it's going to affect the larger context about presenting works um, in general. Yeah, I mean, the presentation of works is... um is something that is that will change already changing um there are many exhibitions taking an online form and even the ones that were not meant to be physically experienced now they're taking online forms and and there's an increase of like live events and conferences live streamings online exhibitions and i mean i think like finding solutions to the current situation this might seem like a solution um uh, is great but at the same time i worry that the opportunity of slowing down and figuring out a new world uh is being postponed and we are being distracted from the i guess a quite like biggest opportunity of our lifetimes uh and i know and see there are many efforts to organize a large solidarity through these digital mediums but i meant to point out the um, presentation aspect and the immediate response to the to kind of like quote-unquote save the art world in a way so many things are being put online and whole collections are being put online this is great but at the same time it's not revolutionary i find it's re- it's not really i almost find it as an opportunistic response um to the situation and and i feel enormous distance to such practices and i want to point out that this is at the same time a privilege and blindness that comes with it and we cannot talk about the overwhelming change that's currently happening um, and it cannot be a tiny comment and a disclaimer um, be- beginning of a like online exhibition in the beginning of an online exhibition or a conference um, we need to do our work obviously but this extreme jump on the wagon of digital presentation of works and digital like work 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 is something I worry a lot about uh, I must say and I think it will end up in a burnout and this is not really caretaking uh, it's a bit of a capitalist machine working violently um, and I also like I want to say like it's new when we're trying to figure out this situation and it's going to affect all of us and even like even if not the content of our works, it's changing the context these works are being made. So it's really important. Um, and I also want to kind of fig- point out like the exploitative aspect of like this work, work, work situation. Um, and um, and I'm 
like more thinking about artists, but also many fields and practices are being um, turning online and and these moments of like that that possibly poses are turning into uh, forced work. And also like I was I was online seeing something. I think Amal Alhag was saying like this is not a moment. Yeah, chill, working from home. Um, it's it's a moment we're trying to work at home while being under quarantine and forced to be at home. So this is a difference and we need to be very clear about this, I think. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a digital, it's not like a digital revolution, it's digital forced quarantine, I guess. I'm, and also I'm thinking like one, I'm, I'm gonna finish with uh, one kind of a quote. Um, I, was, I was listening to a podcast and uh, the person was saying, like uh, talking about Jerry Lewis films, um, black and white Jerry Lewis films, and a scene like Jerry Lewis opens a wardrobe and he takes his suit from it, but then the camera sees corpses hanging in the wardrobe. Uh, he doesn't see it. He doesn't even notice them. He closes it off, uh, closes it off and uh, puts his clothes on and goes out and everything is fine till he starts having flashbacks. Uh, while walking on the streets and over and over he starts seeing these corpses and um i feel like this is a good way to think about like how we need to actually think about it in the longer term and like suppressing certain moments certain processing maybe of um of a great overwhelming situation will only be a postponement um, and might have overwhelming results. And I guess to go back to my work, I'm thinking a lot about grief and solidarity uh, in these times. And I want to also thank Nieuwe Wiede to not like push or like kind of uh, rush to bring this exhibition into an online form, but um, thinking about what this exhibition means in this context um, through uh, a zine, through the podcast and other ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, I agree with you that um, it's definitely time to think also critically about what we're doing online and why we are doing it. Um, and because everything is on the one hand happening uh, very quickly, like the, the change was immediate, but on the other hand, seems to slow down uh, because we are forced to take a step back from kind of the rush of... Uh, of normal quote-unquote uh daily life it's uh, definitely also making us think about uh what we're doing and why we're doing it and i think uh luba um just coming back to you uh i was thinking about the work one of the works you were going to show in the tmi exhibition uh is uh, once upon an online uh, which relates sort of the concept of fairy tales uh to trends on for example social media and you were telling me that you were planning to uh, continue working on this project and relate it to the current situation. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that and how you're working with that now? Yes, sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to also respond a bit about what you was talking before <laughs> and what Valid was uh, saying. I actually think that 
the digital world is not coming over sudden. I think it's always was there. And it's like uh, maybe a certain groups of people should uh, turn their attention to it. But if you talk about uh, another generations, uh, like how it's uh, called Generation Z or Z, it's like people who internet natives, it's uh, people who was born where internet was already there. So they was growing it, growing with it. So all the, they don't make a division between the physical world and the digital world. For them, it's one world. And it's like the same kind of representation. It's just the way how the mind perceives information. And um, so, like, personally, I also was thinking a lot about uh, internet as a platform to be free from whole uh, institutional politics because artists is really depend on the curators, on the art institution, or to, to, to get certain exposure um, via these institutions to gain the public, to gain the community. But in the end of the day, I really doubt if you really gain it because you end up with your friends who is coming to your openings or the same circle of artists. And uh, and interne internet, on the other hand, gives you a wider opportunity to show your work for a bigger audience, for more people from different countries. And um, like personally, uh, straight after the quarantine start, uh, together with my partner, we opened the online gallery, um, which is um, basically it's uh, we, we are like it's open call. You can uh, write to us, or we can write to you, or some so, and you can show your work, which you kind of ready to show to public, and uh, and by that it was really interesting because I started to get to know new people and uh, to see amazing work. And I look at this uh, gallery as a platform. And for me, it's something to make in a community, which I always want to build. But somehow before quarantine, it was difficult. But all of a sudden, with all the problems, everybody becomes so united, I feel. Uh, fighting for Toza, for non-Europeans, you know, writing all these petitions and then uh, fighting for the rights, uh, for people not get kicked out from a house during all of this situation. And then everybody was on it and everybody respond. Like when normally in the whole this um, information flow, maybe it was not so visible. And and if it's talking about the work with the fairy tales and mythology and internet, actually, I think it's a new mythology now is uh, creating. So we, um, the, the, the mythology we were living now before the Corona crisis is gone and now the new one is start to shaping and uh, it's very difficult to grasp of course uh, when like as all the smart people like scientists and philosophers uh, said that when you're inside the myth it's very difficult to describe the myth but when you get out of the myth or the myth is dead it's really easy, no, it's much easier to look at that. So I think um, now it's an interesting time to look on the mythology we were living in because now it's changing. And um, so basically I continue working with the topic and I plan to make an online archive of, uh, of fairy tales and mythology, like old ones uh, told by people, and also contemporary one, which will be generated using social media and different tools of social media and uh, different algorithms. Uh, so I would like to compare what kind of dreams and uh, 
fairy tales uh, come into life right now, what people um, refer to uh, to get this, um, I don't know, feeling of security or maybe uh, because, you know, fairy tales is always was this, uh, they transcend the experience from generation to generation. And in the end, they teach us that everything will be good. In the end of the day, it's all will be fine. We will survive. So that's why uh, it has this therapeutic uh, thing. And I'm curious what kind of fairy tales and mythology is now on, since it's really stressful and traumatic uh, experience we're all going through. And maybe the answers are in these fairy tales. Maybe the answers will come by building a new mythology and new fairy tales. But it's definitely happening uh, right now. I can feel it. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's uh, it's in- it will be interesting to see, uh, as you say, how uh, how the fairy tales and the mythologies develop, and uh, that's something uh, definitely in the future that I think would also be interesting to uh, to reflect on. Of course, um, in terms of the exhibition, we're not sure yet um, whether we can actually uh, present it at some point. I hope so, um, but at the moment we are still waiting to hear more from that but on the other hand uh, we can continue to think about other formats um, and how to uh, reflect on the situation in different ways if it's not possible to do it in a physical space because trying to be short maybe my what I was saying sounded different than what I meant to I I, I mean it was not meant as a like a sweeping anti-digital statement or something it's more like um, you know, turning everything digital immediately as a response, like, and the attention economy that this creates is really overwhelming and and how institutions actually kind of um, forcing work on artists, like if we're talking about the art fields and ignoring individual conditions, the current situation, etc., is problematic. That's what I was saying. And also, I think it's really important to also recognize that large solidarities are being built through digital mediums and that's really really valuable but i was more thinking about like and talking about the presentation aspects and immediate response to i think i just said that also before to save kind of the art world so yeah just to clarify that yeah i think also it's something uh in in my opinion at least uh, which characterizes both of your practices is kind of um uh, a, a research process which extends through different works kind of taking time to really delve into a topic to reflect uh, on issues um, and I think that's also something very important um, to think about in these times when we're talking about information um, because Billy I was also thinking about uh, the work you were going to show in the exhibition um, because I think it illustrates um, kind of part of your research process where you really delve into one topic and a specific incident. Um, and can you tell us maybe a little about, about how you uh, go through a research process like that and reflect on topics over a longer period of time? Um, yeah, I um, it, there are two works, two video works in the um, exhibition. Uh, that you're referring to uh, against randomness and cutout and uh, the, 
the first one was Against Randomness. It was made in 2017. Cut Out was made in 2018. Um, uh, Against Randomness was commissioned by People's Tribunal for Unraveling the NSU Complex, uh, which took place in Köln uh, in 2017 May. Uh, in the tradition of people's tribunals organized by different groups of anti-racist activists, families of the murdered people, neighborhood groups, and the and larger community. Um, and I just want to kind of give a brief uh, information. NSU is a national socialist underground. It's a neo-Nazi network that's known to be existed since late 90s in Germany. And it has implanted two nail bombs in so-called migrant neighborhoods in Germany. Uh, nail bomb is a uh, neo-Nazi strategy um, and attack strategy, especially since 90s, uh, and used against migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, their workspaces, living spaces. Um, besides the naval bomb attacks, the NSU assassinated 10 people in the course of eight years, 2000 to 2007, uh, with the same murder weapon, and nine out of 10 uh, uh, 10 of these murders had migrant background and eight had Turkish Kurdish background and the families and the larger community um, under uh, was under suspicion against their and other people's repeated testimonies pointing out a series of racist attacks and the case was called on the media as Donar murders the division of, of the in the police force um, uh, investigating the case was called Bosphorus these are like very clear uh, racist use of language to say the least uh, I'm not even kind of I mean there is a whole like structural racism behind them uh, um, and these are like there were constant psychological torture towards the families uh, both putting them under suspicion and fabricating false stories uh, in order to pressure, pressure them into um, confessing um, these were done by the police and then as an extension by the mainstream uh, German media. And these are practices that we see in different countries, different contexts, different geographies, uh, in different forms, uh, in a way. Um, I came to this case uh, a little later. I was aware of it and I was following it on the news when it was happening. But I really started digging deeper into the case after I, I was commissioned by the tribunal, People's Tribunal. Um, and... Um, uh, and the commission was together with a group of video, uh, other video ma makers, and there's a tribunal spots audiovisual interventions to the case, and you can find it in tribal-spots.net. We can put it maybe a link on the, under the podcast. Um, um, I, I, as I said, I came to the case a little later and I live in Amsterdam, so I'm not living in Germany and I do not speak German and I I'm, I mean, even though these countries are next to each other, like the, the whole historical context, political context is quite different. And um, um, I then decided to look at the case through its online uh, images. Um, um, what does online sources say to someone who is not from Germany, who doesn't read German, who's trying to figure things out uh, from a distance? Um, and um, so in in the video against randomness, um, I like as as I look through the images and I you know generally my works I do not kind of have an idea of uh, what is going to come 
out, but the, but the whole process defines the outcome. I mean, it is always the case for people, but I do not have like I'm not I do not have an um, overview of like what the work will be uh, about. I do have generally a starting point and then work things out uh, through the research uh, process. Um, and I, uh, as I look at the images and the images I was looking at were like murder scenes, commemorations, uh, family photographs, and and I I could see details of these photographs, and I could I, w- I was focusing on small small corners, small uh, um, small parts of it, focusing in details of the photographs, and um, and then also thinking about the um, the story of these people who have went through this and who the families of the murdered people and and what came through this process was like the necessity of narrating one's own story and what it means to have a control of that narrative and the, and what does it mean to lose that control very violently in public and going through grief in public um and i wanted to kind of trace this through the use of, of images that i could find online um, and the piece starts with a quote from an academician from Turkey. It says, storytelling is a resistance against the perception that life is a series of random events. It's thinking that the visual realm is a ground for resistance, thinking against the narrative that our lives, migrant lives, and what happens to migrants is random and a result of individual choices, as if migrants are not living under systemic violence with constant confirmation of racist discourse. But if I come to cut out, it was like it was a second video that I made. I made a couple of more videos uh, about the case. Um, I wanted to the cut like cut out the video cut out came um, maybe yeah more than a year uh, after against randomness, um, and at that time the court case was going on uh, about NSU and about these um, ten murders. Uh, and the ma- news media was full of um, stories about how the perpetrators were dressed, how they behaved in the court, what they did in the breaks, like how they were brought to the court, their gestures, etc. Um, and there was, in comparison, very few articles and images in, of, uh, about the families and of the murdered. Um, the names of the murdered were being erased, like nobody remembered them. Their images on the on the media, I mean, their images were uh, erased. Their stories were being erased slowly, slowly through reporting about the perpetrators, the continuous reporting about the perpetrators. Um, so I wanted to make a work that talks about the murdered and the families. Um, I wanted people to hear their names through this work. This was kind of like a after looking online, I, I kind of decided that at that moment, this was really important to bring, make work about per, uh, about um, um, the victims. And I found this image, it's a police file photo of the murdered, and it was the image of the murdered that was uh, uh, circulating the largest, like you could find that image the most when you search online. Um, and it's so telling that like a collage fabricated by the police was the most circulating image of the murdered people. And I focused on um, each person on the photo, uh, focused on each single photograph uh, itself, uh, like asking questions, what does the photograph say to us? What does the f- framing tell us? The background the, the their look the look of the people in the in the image the shadows i tried to imagine and even speculate um what might be around them how this photo might have been taken by whom and where and 
uh, what might be beside them, in front of them, how they might feel at that moment, to kind of speculate and almost animate that uh, moment of the photograph. And um, these photographs are, are brought together in this larger collage, and what brings them together is their murder by the same neo-Nazi group and even by the same weapon. And I wanted to insist on an, like, an, an interrogation and a, a different type of interrogation, this time from a perspective of an audience. What do we see here? Um, yeah, so, and also like, I, I find it really important to, I wanna kind of note it here, because in, especially in Against Randomness, but also in, uh, like more explicitly in Against Randomness, but also in Cutout, and almost all, all my works kind of imagine a V uh, that they're addressing. And we can be, I mean, the word we can be very fragile and precarious and it can be kind of pretentious, even nostalgic, and even can be problematic. But I find it really important to imagine a solidarity, a we that comes together, a militant, a radical we. Uh, it can be at times joyful, comical and tragic, but, you know, I, I find it really important to imagine that as well. It's also like true that through these works, I'm also speculating about a we I, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's very interesting also to hear about um, the kind of process you went through to create these works and um, how you as kind of an quote unquote outsider in terms of uh, the trial that was happening and not living in Germany um, are able to reflect perhaps differently on uh, on the representation of this uh, of these incidents. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do hope uh, at some point we're able to still show the work because I think it's very uh, well. It's made quite an impression on me. That much I can say. Um, and I think also uh, in uh, in the zine that uh, we're going to publish soon. Uh, there's going to be an article uh, talking also a bit more, I think, specifically about cutout um, and reflecting a bit more on the, on the context of the work. So I definitely recommend people to, uh, to read that once it's out. Uh, and I think the other interesting thing you say is uh, how your set, kind of your research process or your process of working defines the outcome. Uh, and I was wondering, Luba, how does it work for you? Because uh, like the work you are going to show, among other things, uh, Carpetologia, is also based on like a lengthy research process you went through in uh, Armenia. Uh, was it for you also the case that your process determined the outcome? Yeah, I think in the, if we talk about carpetologia for sure, uh, because I came to Armenia and I was researching carpets and... Um, I want to learn more about the art of carpet making and uh, yeah but of course it's all come together when i land there it's a beautiful country with a uh, all one of the oldest in the world tradition of uh, creating rugs and carpets and um, and then this is a christian country so they can put on the carpet uh, also humans and animals and so that's why I also chose them. And it's also post-Soviet country, so I can speak Russian, uh, which make the whole process of research and um, interviewing people much easier for me. So, 
yeah, I was looking on a lot of different carpets and then I was traveling through the country, looking uh, to this beautiful nature and I can st- and I started to see the links between the nature and the shapes of the carpet because it's really graphical carpet. It's uh, and then all these messages which is inside of them and um, so but this of course was much uh, wider context because as we all know uh, that Armenia have this big trauma after Armenian genocide and this is a kind of shared trauma for the whole people in Armenia and I think this has become some kind of uh, national ad- identity at the, at some point because uh, wherever you go to museum, you have the special uh, room or several rooms dedicated to this topic. And, um, and of course, if you look through the contemporary Armenian art, which I was also very curious, and was curious if some contemporary artists working with the topic of carpets or do some interesting other works, like another mediums, and I couldn't find anything except if it was dedicated to Armenian genocide. And situation politically-wise is still a bit tense in the borders with some of their neighbors. So how to say, and then in this cocktail, let's say you still have this mind-blowingly beautiful nature and this old churches and this old old carpets and rugs. and, um, And then I was really surprised that it's not really... um, I don't. I, I couldn't find any contemporary work on that, and uh, but I, I, I guess it's something personal. And uh, if you was born there, you have completely different look on the, this heritage. But anyway, um, um, I just want to share one beautiful story, which uh, in which uh, like this trauma, like the Armenian genocide and the beautiful rocks come together, because um, back in the days when the genocide started, a lot of people uh, flew away from Armenia, and uh, since it was a tradition that the family, like rich families mostly, but I think over years more and more families can afford to have a carpet or rock in their house, so in some families they took the rock and they cut it on the, on the parts and gave to each family member so this is the story about two sisters and their mother cut the rock on two parts gave to each of them this carpet and said like this carpet will help you to meet if you lost each, uh, lose each other so they get lost obviously and uh, through the years in uh, new york in Armenian church, um, one of the sister brought one part of the carpet and then another sister another time brought another one so they met after like 50 years i don't know after i don't know exact amount of time uh, but from several after several years they met through the rug through the carpet and they both survived and i think it's a beautiful story <laughs> and um and uh this is also like for me it's a story where all these facts about this country meet and it's really characterized the country i think wh- where it is now but um, it's still tradition really strong. And I think uh, in some regions, in the villages, people like uh, women uh, mostly still uh, doing uh, carpets and rugs. And um, I was in a carpet factory, uh, really kind me, like the, the, everybody was super kind to let me go through whole factory, show me everything. And I chat with the woman who worked there. It's uh, it's very beautiful and interesting tradition, and I think it's it's um, 
carry a lot of uh, messages in it and also energetically and also the mood and um, a lot of different levels let's say yeah and i think also uh, you were planning to uh, in the scene that we're working on uh, to include some extra videos uh, footage uh, for example some of the research uh, that you've done there is that right so we can learn a little bit more also about the work there yeah, it's in the online zine. I did a small video work. Basically, I chose a part from interview of the, uh, I think it's a director. I don't want to lie. The from one of the person from a factory. Let's put it this way who I interview and who told me very beautiful stories about the carpet's history and all the messages. And uh, so I choose the sports, made the subtitles. And as a video, you can see the all the different variety of the carpets which we filmed in the biggest uh, street market. Uh, it's called Vernissage. It's uh, in Yerevan. So we filmed there. It's uh, very interesting. It's like I think it gives a grasp a bit in the way what uh, meaning people uh, like meaning and also feeling and also history of the carpets in Armenia. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm very excited to uh, to see it. So we'll uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, the time when we can uh, we can publish it hopefully soon. Um, I think in terms of time, um, we're running out of time. So I think we need to move on to a final question for you both, uh, which is a question we ask uh, every episode. Um, as you know, uh, Nimovide also has a, a large community around soup. And uh, I think both of you have joined us already once or twice uh, for famous uh, soup meetings. Uh, so I guess my final question for you both is, uh, do you have a favorite soup, uh, Billy? Do you have one? I have joined the Nive Vida soup, uh, soups once. It was really beautiful bringing the community together. Um, I was thinking, like, <laughs> I don't want to give, like, a. Um, I think I will just say I love a warm soup in cold weather, and even a little bit cold is enough for a soup. Uh, um, and I love creamy soups without much flour and soups that I can put a yogurt or creme fraiche on top. <laughs> and I can put that on top of almost all soups, I think. So I'm not, I can't choose. <laughs> I cannot choose. <laughs> it's difficult, right? How about you, Luba? Um, I like my favorite, favorite. I mean, I have few favorites, let's say. Uh, one of the uh, like top three, let's say. Uh, the first place is going to vegetarian ramen. And uh, and I even know exact place where in town. I hope this place will survive in Amsterdam. I tried my favorite uh, Japanese uh, vegetarian ramen, which was amazing. And I also can cook one. I found a really nice recipe. So this is my the most favorite soup. And then other two is uh, I really love also all the different types of uh, cream soups. And I think uh, lentil cream soup uh, I love a lot with the red lentils. And uh, also the third soup I love cold soup. Uh, for summer it's amazing. It's uh, avocado cold soup with the peas. It's amazing. And another one is Lithuanian cold borscht on the kefir. It's also amazing. So, yeah. Too many good ideas here, uh, <laughs> making me hungry. 
<laughs> well, thank you both uh, very much for joining me. Uh, I think it was very interesting to uh, hear a little bit more about your work and your thoughts on the, the current situation. So as we already mentioned, uh, we are working uh, together with the two other artists from the exhibition, uh, Alexandra Hans and uh, Don Fibbe. Uh, we're working on an online zine, uh, which will include some more in-depth uh, texts about your work, uh, but also some video work uh, and some other things uh, suited for the online uh, community. So uh, keep an eye on our website for that, and uh, we will keep you updated on uh, when it's going to be online. Um, so finally, um, for both of you, are there any places uh, where people can read more about your work or find more information? Uh, we're also going to put uh, links to this in our show notes so people can find it. Uh, Belit, can we find you somewhere? Um, I have a, I mean, my works are all online. They have been online uh, on a Vimeo page, which we will put on the uh, um I guess on the podcast and vimeo.com slash billet and I have a website bit.contrast.org. Great. And Luba, can we find you somewhere? Yeah. Uh, also all my works are presented in my on my website. It's uh, lubudubum.com and uh, also I have uh, Instagram where I share my thoughts <laughs> and uh, some uh, research I'm doing. And actually, I'm also starting uh, in a uh, YouTube channel slowly, <laughs> <laughs> but starting <laughs> and uh, where I will share the interviews with the contemporary artists and musicians, because I found that uh, it's very interesting people <laughs> and nobody interview them. It's only when you're really famous. But I guess uh, no matter how famous are you, uh, it's um, deserves some attention and uh, I really would like to think along with another artist in the way how we can reshape the art world. Cool. Well, uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, thanks again to you both for, uh, for joining us. And um, for the last part of this episode, we are going to switch back to Dutch. Um, as we're going to listen to another short story uh, from the series Rare Tijden in Absurdistan by Marius Bruin. Rare Tijden in Absurdistan Deel 5 Twee mensen vielen van het dak. Zij vielen beide van het dak van een nieuw gebouw met vier verdiepingen. Van een school naar het schijnt. Zij zakten over de rand en begonnen te vallen. De eerste die hun val opmerkte was Joke Vrucht. Zij stond in het tegenoverliggende gebouw voor het raam en snoot haar neus tegen het vensterglas. Plotseling zag ze dat iemand van het dak begon te vallen. Nader beschouwd zag ze dat er twee tegelijk waren die begonnen te vallen. Helemaal in de war trok ze haar jurk uit en begon hiermee zo snel mogelijk het beslagen vensterglas schoon te vegen om beter te kunnen zien wie daar van het dak vielen. 
Toen zij echter beseften dat de vallenden van hun kant haar naakt konden zien, wie weet wat van haar zouden denken, sprong Joke van het venster weg en verstopte zich achter de gevlochte driepoot waarop eens een bloempot had gestaan. Op dat moment werden de beide van het dak vallenden gezien door een ander persoon, die in hetzelfde gebouw woonde als Joke Vrucht, alleen twee verdiepingen lager. Deze persoon heette ook Joke Vrucht. Zij zat op dat moment juist met haar benen op de vensterbank en naaide een knoop aan haar pantoffel. Toen ze uit het raam keek, zag zij de beide van het dak vallenden. Joker schreeuwde het uit, sprong van de vensterbank en begon haastig het raam te openen om beter te kunnen zien hoe de van het dak vallenden tegen de aarde te pletter zouden slaan. Maar het raam ging niet open. Joke herinnerde zich dat ze het raam van onder had vastgespijkerd en stormde op de oven af waarin ze haar gereedschap bewaarde, vier hamers, een bijtel en een nijptang. Nou, en met de tang rende ze naar het raam en trok de spijkers los. Nu sprong het raam gemakkelijk open. Joke boog een eind uit het venster en zag hoe de van het dak vallenden suizend op de aarde afvlogen. Op straat had zich al een klein groepje mensen verzameld. Er klonk al gefluit en op de plaats van de te verwachten gebeurtenis verscheen zonder haast een politieagent, klein van stuk. Een besnorde handhaver liep juist druk rond. Ja, dames en heren, een beetje naar achter. De, de van het dak vallenden kunnen op uw hoofd terechtkomen. Ja, een beetje naar achter. Ondertussen begonnen de beide joken vruchts uit het raam hangend, de een aangekleed, de ander naakt, te krijsen en te trappelen. En daar sloegen eindelijk de twee van het dak vallenden met uitgestrekte armen en opengesperde ogen tegen de aarde te pletter. Dit was het dan alweer voor deze aflevering van Nieuwe Vide Radio. Houd onze website nieuwevide.nl en social media in de gaten voor nieuwe afleveringen die elke twee weken zullen verschijnen. Deze podcast wordt gemaakt door het team van Nieuwe Vide. De presentatie is in handen van Lisbeth Vizé, curator, en Ietje Veenstra, projectcoördinator. Sitske Rorda is medewerker communicatie en editor van de podcast. Saskia Burgraaf is medewerker communicatie en vormgeving. En Wil Maris voor de administratie en beheer. Met veel dank aan mensen schrik voor onze jingle. Het hoorspel was een verhaal van Daniel Charms, bewerkt en ingesproken door Marius Bruin. Tot de volgende keer!